Hi friends, this is Kelly from the A&R Podcast, where we talk about activism and revival. Um, normally we have my other change agent, our, my, our partner, Ashley Cross, but today we have a special guest that's going to stand in her place because she has to minister alongside her husband today at Glory House International in Rochester. Shout out to them. Yeah. But just so you all remember, this is a movement that focuses on mobilizing the Christian church to create dialogue, awareness, and solutions for social change and justice. So in just a second, you're going to understand a little bit more about that through our phenomenal guest who our guest host is going to introduce. Um, his name is Dr. Chris House. So right now I'm going to let him introduce himself and talk a little bit about who our special guest is. And then we're going to let her tell you all, of, uh, all about herself and why we think she's so phenomenal. Dr. House, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. My name is Dr. Christopher House, uh, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Ithaca College and also pastor of Christian Community Church. Uh, tenure professor. Let's, yes, let's tenure like professor. That. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Amen. And I am so honored to have um, Dr. Estrella Alexander with us, whose uh, research has been so influential in my own life and my writing. Um, when you read any of my work about um, Pentecostal social action, look at the footnotes. Yeah. You're going to see <laughs> Just look. Just look. But let me just introduce it, Dr. Estrella Alexander, the founder and president of William Seymour College in Maryland. And if you don't know who William Seymour is, you need to find out. She previously taught at Regent University and Wesley Theological Seminary. She's authored more than 30 essays and journal articles wow. on Pentecostal. And let me just say, publishing one is hard. The <laughs> 30 essays and journal articles on Pentecostal wow. history, theology, race, gender, and social justice. Mm. Her public works include Black Fire, Fire Reader, a documentary resource on African-American Pentecostalism, Black Fire, 100 Years of African-American Pentecostalism, Limited Liberty, the Ministry and Legacy of Four Pentecostal Women Pioneers, and the Women of Azusa Street, Dictionary of Pan-African Pentecostalism. Wow. And she's co-authored, co-edited two other uh, works, Philip's Daughter, Daughters, Women in the Pentecostal Movement and Afro-Pentecostalism, and Black Pentecostal and Charismatic Christianity and History and Culture. She's been very, very busy, but she took some time to be with us today, so we are delighted to have you with us. Welcome, Dr. Estrella Alexander. Yes, welcome. I think I got to spend some more money on Amazon.com. <laughs> yes. well, I mean, goodness. Thank Those are a lot of books, but thank you for hanging out with us today. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I said I founded William Seymour College 10 years ago, but I've been involved in no finding as much as I can about Pentecostalism, especially African-American Pentecostalism. I grew up as a Pentecostal, but with very limited knowledge of the movement. Mm -hmm. um, nobody ever heard of William Seymour when I was growing up. We never talked about him. And to find out that the fastest growing segment of the Christian movement, there are 600 million Christians yeah. in the world. And that the person that God used to usher in the movement was a African-American and he, all the literature says uneducated, although I use the word self-educated, African-American, former, a son of former slaves who God used in a powerful way to usher in a powerful movement that has changed the face of Christianity. And the sad part is most African-American Pentecostals, half of us have never heard of him. Mm. And he, and he, and what's interesting is that Time Magazine 
called him one of the 100 most influential Christians in history. Wow. And still, most of us have never heard of him. Wow. Why do you think nobody, we don't really know about him? Because, well, there's been a concerted effort by white scholars to write him out of the history of Pentecostalism. And they, there's a movement afoot that says nobody was, in, nobody was at the head of the Pentecostal movement. It was just the movement of the Holy Spirit. But when you go, nobody ever says nobody was at, in, at the head of West of the Methodist Church. It was Wesley. Or nobody was the head of the Reformation. It was Luther. Or nobody was the head of the Reformed Church. It was Calvin. People know those names because they were white people. But when it comes to having somebody that God chose, the Bible says He chooses those things that seem foolish to the world, and and He uses them to bring about great change. And He used Seymour, who saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as God's way of unifying the body of Christ racially, across genders, um, across classes, nationalities. They were all representatives of the street and everybody was active and he really believed the Holy Spirit was going to unify the body of Christ and we would be one body. And he died brokenhearted and disappointed that that didn't happen. What do you have to say, you said that a lot of um, people who participated in Azusa Street were former um, slaves or former freedom seekers. Um, what do you have to say to African Americans or black and brown people who think that Christianity is not for us but instead was imposed on us by slave masters or other white people? Well, first of all, I, I, I think it's important to know that we did not become Christians when we came to the United States. A lot of people say that slavery was God's vehicle for Christianizing black people. Well, they were black Christians in Africa. That's right. And when blacks came to this country, they were they tried to beat the Christianity that we did know out of us. Mm. But there was a, 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 you know, as I said, from the day of Pentecost on, there were, first of all, in, at the day of Pentecost, there were people from all over the world, including Africa, that heard them speak the wonderful words of God. But when, when um, the eunuch from Ethiopia, when he heard the gospel, he went back to Ethiopia as an evangelist. And there's been... Christianity in Africa ever since, yeah. and we have we have been taught that we were not Christians, that um, that um, we were heathens, and God used slavery to Christianize us. And so many young African Americans reject that story, and many of our pastors don't know enough right. to teach them the difference. And that's part of my my struggle as an educator is to educate our leaders so our leaders can teach our young people so they'll know the truth about who they are. Yeah, and I like what you said earlier. You said that some said he was uneducated, but you said self-educated. He was self-educated. Which, I mean, just really underscore how words matter and how stories shape yes. um, beliefs and values. And so, I mean, who, who's telling the story is in the powerful right, position. Right. And you've been telling a story right. that ha- it was true but it has not been told. Why is that important? You like to recover all these figures of right. people who are involved in this. Well, one thing I say all the time, you can't let anybody else tell your story because yeah. they'll tell it their way. Yeah. And for years, there was no textbook on African-American Pentecostalism in the entire country. Right. And I went to a few of my colleagues and said, let's write, a, let's write an edited volume. Everybody write a chapter. Everybody was too busy. And my thing was, okay, then I need to write it. That's right. Because if if our story never gets told, people who read that book say it changed their lives. Right. They never saw themselves as leaders in the movement. We always saw ourselves as followers. We derived um, our spirituality from other people. But even before Zulu Street, we had Charles 
Harrison Mason, we had Charles Price Jones, we had William Christian. They were black holiness sects even before the Holy Spirit was poured out. They were already involved in revival and they existed separately. And you know, when the when when the industry came, many of them became Pentecostal, but they were already they they preceded the Pentecostal movement and they became Pentecostal. They were already here, but we don't know that story because when the history one thing that, that I found when I was in seminary and we, we read, I'm not gonna mention the author, but we read the major history on Pentecostalism, Seymour is a footnote. Wow. And I was like, who is this Seymour? That's a footnote. He he gets maybe a page. How can wow. you, the founder of the movement get a page? You wouldn't read a Methodist history that had Wesley as a page, but we accept what has been given to us without realizing that we have something more to offer. And so I made it my life's passion to make sure that black people, black Pentecostals, know who William Seymour is. Do you look at the work that you've done as a form of social justice? Yes, I do. I think that one of the things that, well, for black people to have a sense of themselves is a form of social justice. So when I can educate- Can you say a little more about that? That's, that's, that's really good. Well, because a lot of times the reason why we, we are in bondage to a lot of things is we don't have a sense of who we are. So if I never realized that God thought it worthy that he would use a black person, we think that everything good that happened happened to white people. And so we don't have a sense of who we are if, before God. As we stand before God in all of my blackness, he sees me as a fit vessel. But I would know that if I have no models to yeah, to go yeah, back to. Yeah. So it's important that we lift up models. And that's why I said it wasn't just Seymour. It was Charles Price Jones. It was Charles Harrison Mason. It was Lawson. It was um, all these people that God was using. Ida Robinson, my role model. I, I looked at that woman and she said she went on a 40-day fast and came out and said, God told me to come out on Mount Sinai and loose the women. And that for me has been the rally cry because this woman who, you know, women didn't, she founded the denomination. Yeah, women didn't yeah. do that, black woman. And it's still a viable denomination to this day. Right. So when we as black people, you know, we have all these role models that are in the world and doing worldly things and we think that no, we, don't have any, we don't have any stake in Christianity, we, we are told. But yes, we do. We have a big stake, and we need to know that and claim that as our own. And then we can live lives that are productive for the kingdom of God. So yes, it's a social justice issue for me. I felt like even in even in uh, denomination, the uh, Pentecostal denomination that I grew up in, it didn't even lift up the pastors who were activists. And had I known that we had pastors who yes, were activists, yes. I wouldn't have felt like I was so weird. Yes, and there was something yes. on the inside of me that was drawn towards helping the hurting, drawn towards uh, fighting the system of injustice. And there were bishops, right? I mean, in my there were life, pastors in your lifetime yeah. that were doing the same thing. And I didn't thing. find out about it until they were dead. Because we didn't, well, the one, you know, we, we say we're an oral tradition, and that sounds good on paper, and yes, that gets us over, but we need to write. And we need to read. And too often, things have happened. And, and so the, the dictionary is a little different than... Um, I made sure that every Pentecostal, black Pentecostal body in the United States that I could find was noted in that dictionary. Every leader, everybody who did something of worth, we need to know that these people existed and that they weren't in, in a vacuum someplace 
Arthur Brazier is a good example. Yeah. Who did, did wonderful things in Chicago. Yeah. Herbert Daughtry in Brooklyn. We have all these people who were doing things we never knew about them. We have, you know, Lawson wrote in the 1920s the anthropology of Jesus Christ, our kinsman. And he talks about the blood of every nation flowing through the blood of Christ. But we don't know that. And so we see it as a foreign religion that's not available to us. And so we, and so many of the young people that I encounter today, they have written off Christianity or they're mixing Christianity with other things. So they got to find themselves in something. They put it together and make up a religion. But if we can go back and teach them who we are in Christ, then I think we can we can do a lot to, and even in terms of that's in the church, but young people in the streets. We're talking about social justice. Yeah. Many of them have rejected Christ because they don't see anything in of themselves in the Christ that we have given them. Because there was a lack of evidence. There's a lack of evidence, and so we have to take it as a project. We have to be serious about educating our people about who we are. I do for Black History Month. I do a series. When I go back to the blacks in the Bible, many people don't even know they were black people in the Bible. Yeah. yeah okay, yeah. and then I talk about African spirituality and how African spirituality informs us as Christians. Mm. And many people don't realize that there are many things that we do that are African, and we they, people say, "Well, that's syncretism." Every form of Christianity is syncretized. The the Christianity that white people practice has Greek elements in it. It's syncretized. So. We let them call out something, and we see it, see it as negative, but they're doing the same thing, and we don't bother to question. We, we assume that what they say is true, and we take that to be our truth, and so we cast off Christianity as a reject because of what other people have said. And black scholars need to become serious about this. Black Bible-believing scholars. See, the liberals have it. And we have given over the social justice project to the liberals. Right. And so when a person who is a Bible-believing Christian believes that the Bible as the Word of God compels us to work for justice, just like the work that you're doing, the, the, they would call that the social gospel. But that's not the social gospel. There is only one gospel, and every gospel is social. God loved the entire world. Every part of our being, God loved, and we need to redeem all of that. And, and a lot of our young people see that coming from other segments, but don't yeah. come in, see it coming from the Bible-believing church. Like, how do how do you how do you get what you're writing and your your research? How do you how do you filter that down? So, like, for me, the the test is when I'm writing something. I always think, how will this benefit the guys in the barbershop? I'm not writing this well, for my, for my, my colleagues. I, that's I'm right. Like, I want to help them in the barbershop. So. In what ways do you take this information and disseminate it in churches and things like that? Right. People who may not ever step foot in a seminary or a college. Well, first of all, you just disseminate to conversation. Just like we're having a conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was telling somebody, I love conversation. I love the, back, the ebb and flow of conversation. <laughs> a lot of scholars lock themselves up in the ivory tower. And yeah, they're yeah. offended by, by confrontation. I'm not. I will talk to anybody. And so the other thing is that... I, was, I'm, I, I know I have a PhD. In fact, I have four degrees, but I'm from the hood. Come so on, yes. I can talk the language. And that's important that we yeah. don't forget where we came from right. and we can talk the language so that people can engage us and I'm approachable. We can't, I mean, too much. And I, when I was in, one of the things that, that bothered me most when I was in a Christian academy is how cutthroat in terms of, I've written 30 
30 articles, but it wasn't to get ahead of anybody else. Mm -hmm. So much of what we do is to get ahead of somebody else mm -hmm. rather than what contribution can we make to the body of Christ? What contribution yeah. can we make to people to change? If I'm not writing or teaching to change lives, then I need to turn in my bag right. and do That's something right. else. And so what we need to do is be about the Father's business. So when I write, I want I can use language. I can use how yeah, I, I was reading something the other day. I was reading a dissertation, and I'm like, these. I had to get a dictionary. I'm like, if I have to get a dictionary, yeah. and I got a PhD and I had yeah. one for years. Yeah. This is not useful. And so, Ooh. and it was a, it was about a black Pentecostal person, but it was very. It it was like I got to prove I can use these words, so I'm going to put throw them in there instead of who who will read this, whose life will be changed from reading this, and that's when. You know, when I write, I want people's lives. I want people to, my greatest thrill in life is when people come to me and say, Dr. Alexander, 10 years ago I read this and it changed my life. 20 years ago you said such and such and it changed my life. I want what I do today that some young person can take it and run with it and it changes their lives. So they will then turn, say something or do something to change somebody else's life. That's what it's got to be about. What I've, um, in addition to your passion for helping black people see themselves in the in, in the basic the history of Pentecostalism. You've also, in my opinion, defended women. Yes. Um, my church, we've even written and done a play and everything about Azusa Street, and we have had to, especially as ministers in my church, know what Azusa Street was, what happened. You have to be able to. It's actually like on our test. Um, for ordination <laughs> um, but one thing that was missing out of everything that I learned were, were, were the women Yeah. and so one thing that I got from your book um, was I mean there were so many women that were really impactful during Azusa Street while, while, while that revival was going on but then even afterwards yes. they had like some great contributions and that, and that book is only big. I'm revising that book because there are 19 women in that book. I found 19 more women at Azusa Street. More? More women, yes, <laughs> who were very involved in that. But I'm also doing another book just on women in the Pentecostal movement. Women are sidelined still. And so I've been very, um, I'm sidelined in some ways in my own denomination, but I'm, I'm Type of person I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do, so it doesn't really matter to me. But so, but so many of the young girls that or young women that I meet are they feel compelled to fall into line with whatever they've been told they can do. And God doesn't make a mistake when God gives gifts, God does not say, Oops, I meant to put that into a man. Mm. God gave me the gifts He gave me to use for His glory. And I can't stand before God and say they didn't let me do such and such. And so, like I said, my role model is Ida Robinson, who came, who said, God told her to come out on Mount Sinai and loose the women. And she started the Mount Sinai Holy Church for 70 years. It was led by women bishops. I don't think every woman needs to be a bishop, but every woman needs to do what God told her yeah. to do. And, and if we really, and you're, and you're a good example, you're over in India, you're ministering to people if we really believe that the harvest is plentiful and the labors are few, it's all hands on deck. Why are we exactly. tying the hands of half of the field hands so they can't do anything when we say there's an urgent need and women are much 
I don't want to make, I have to be careful when I say this because men get very upset with me, but women are very sensitive <laughs> to the Holy Spirit. I and, believe that. And they are more likely, if they were let loose, we could change the world if we would let our women free to do what God called them to do. But it takes women like you who say, I'm going to do it regardless. You know what God called you to do. But every woman, and the other thing that I have a problem with women, I have to say this, <laughs> is when I ask women what they want to do, most of them say, whatever God wants me to do. Men can tell you what God wants them to do. Women are socialized not to know what God has called them to do. Ooh. And I am, I get very, I get in your face if you tell me whatever God says. No, what did God say? And you need to, if you don't know, you need to find out what God said for you to do. And that's what you need to do. Wow. Um, your book challenged me in this area. Um, everything you're saying to me um, today, it just seems like leave evidence, leave evidence, leave evidence. And I have, I have lacked in that in a lot of different ways. For me personally, as far as writing and journals and all this different stuff. And the woman that I most identify with in your book, um, do you know who? Let's see if we can guess. Lucy Farrow. No. I don't know. Leatherman. Oh, Lucy Leatherman, yes, yes, yes. So, the reason why is because, of course, she was a missionary. A missionary. <laughs> but I was a little disappointed that, like, I believe that when you wrote the book, you looked for every piece yes, of information right, about yes. her that you could. But for not just her, but some a lot of women in the book, it's like, it's not a lot of information out there. It's not a lot of information oh, out there. Oh, yeah, there isn't. But, so I'm like, man... I need to leave evidence. Yes. I need to leave evidence that I existed. Yes. And I don't want to just... You wrote a lot about her triumphs, so we know the great things she did, but we don't really know, like, did you have a bad day? Your husband died. <laughs> Your husband died. And he was a physician, so y'all had to have a, a, a few coins. Yeah. But now, you got to depend on churches to support you. Like, did you get depressed? What was that like? And I think it's important for women like myself coming up. I mean, what do you have to say about challenging even people right now for us to leave evidence. Well, that's that's the whole, one of the problems with black Pentecostalism in particular is the lack of evidence. We're doing some projects right now. We're doing a series. I also started a press, the Seymour Press, that we publish books. And we're doing a series on heroes of the faith. What we're finding is we can write about the highlights. Yes. But we don't have enough material to write a, a, a biography that paints them a full picture because we didn't leave evidence. We, the early Pentecostals believed Jesus was coming soon, so it didn't matter. And for many of the women, we don't even know, one of the problems have been, we didn't even know many of those women's first names, because they didn't call them by their name, they called them Mrs. John Smith. And so you trying to find out who this woman is who did these great exploits, the woman doesn't have even have a name. So part of my research has been to, you know, to get whatever I could get my hands on, that would give me a clearer picture of the lives, like you said, the real lived lives of these women, but there's so little evidence. But because of the internet and some of the tools, the research tools that have become available lately, we've been able to do a little bit more, but part of that legacy, I, I fear, is forever lost. And the other thing is that even if they left behind materials, families aren't sharing them. Yeah, that's what's gonna ask, is like primary sources? Or primary something? sources, yeah. but a lot of families and I have to tell you this story. Um, Barbara Amos, who is 
uh, one of the ministers, one of the uh, the women who was in Mount Sinai, who was slated to become, a, she was a bishop, and she was in North Carolina, she was doing something, and she happened to be at the first church that Ida Robinson started, when she started in 1925, and they and she she did it right, she, she got incorporated, she had everything done right, at her organization meeting, they took handwritten notes. Barbara Amos happened to be, this is 10 years ago, she happened to be visiting that church and she was in the room making a phone call and she happened to look beside the desk and they had taken those handwritten notes and threw them in the trash. Wow. They had no understanding of the value of our history. And so she snatched them and saved them. But if had she not done that, we would have never had those notes. And so much of our history has been in, they have, they've taken those, but they stashed them somewhere. We have to, we have really, we have art, we also have the Pan-African Pentecostal Archive at the school. We're trying to recover, we, by hook or crook, every person we can meet that might have any material, we're trying to talk them out of giving it to us so that we will have a history. Because we have not been good at keeping our own history, and other people have been very adamant in destroying that history so that we will have none. And we're, we're, and we're, we, we are committed to uh, to keeping that history going. Yeah, um, as far as like the early 1900s, I think I think the lack of education probably also contributed to lack, you know, not a lot of notes being taken. Like for instance, um, I I'm of course studying the Underground Railroad and, and parallel right, yes. between human trafficking now and yes. then. Um, and most of the information that we have were. were are, were from records kept by people who were born free um, because they were especially like William Still, the father of the Underground Railroad, he was keeping records about, alright, this person left this plantation mm-hmm. and this is how they got there, this is who helped them but the people he was helping couldn't read and they couldn't write and I think that maybe a lot of times uh, maybe enslaved, being enslaved also prevented us from leaving a, a yeah, but there are some places see, we have to also now learn what the resources are mm-hmm. because there are things like the WPA reports. Yeah, they went back and they interviewed some of those people. But see, we a lot of us don't know what the resources are. There's a woman; she was a uh, she was the first black woman bishop in the United Methodist Church, Leontine Kelly. Her family ran up. Ran an underground railroad stop, and her autobiography is published. We don't know about a lot of the material. We have to start being more vocal in um, in sharing the information that we have. I'm, I used to be president of the Society for Pentecostal Studies, but this year we initiated the Alliance of African American yeah. Pentecostal Scholars. We are committed to working together to make this thing work. And so there, and and. You know, the first year I went to, to SPS, there might have been four black people. There's 150 members of the yeah. Alliance of African American Pentecostal Scholars. We are committed to conserving that history and, and creating our own theologies and being able to speak for ourselves. And because much, of, even much of the scholarship on black Pentecostalism that's being done today are being done by not by people who are not of color. When I when I found SPS, it was home for me. It was a place where I could be both black and yeah, mm. I could be both uh, black Pentecostal and intellectual. Yeah, you know, so that I mean, you didn't have to make excuses for exactly, yourself. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think that's important for us to carve out spaces where we can be ourselves 
and fully be ourselves and bring all who we are to the conversation. Right. Like that's right. We do scholarship on Friday, but on Thursday night we'll be worshiping in tongues. That's right. So we have this mixture, and 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 it's mostly white organization, but because of the number of African Americans that have found and and people like me, who when I was the only one, I didn't run away and say I'm not going to do this. We invited other people. We started bringing people, and now it's grown that we have a presence that cannot be denied. And so that's really important. Um, and 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 to show that we we love God, but we have to love God with all of ourselves, with yeah. our body, our mind, our spirit. We can't leave part of us at the door and only worship God with our body and our spirit and our minds. So now we have a place where we and we need to be unashamedly black in who we yeah. are. Yeah. And so, and you said it's a spirit, a spirit inspired intellect, spirit empowered intellect. Spirit empowered intellect. Yeah. How did you come up with that phrase? Like, what? I mean, well, I wrote, I, well I, when I wrote my presidential address, it, 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 it's, it's what, it's what I, I've been fighting all my life is this understanding that you're too intellectual. You don't fit here, especially in the Pentecostal churches that I've been in. Yeah. It was like there was no place for me, but I can God really impressed upon me that intellect is a gift from God. Mm. When God formed me, he knew who I was. Yeah. He gave me that gift. And because I'm willing to, like you said, give all of it back to God, you know, it can't be my mind can do its own thing and I'm I'm saved, but my yeah. mind is over here. Yeah. My mind is part of who I am. The gift that I bring to the altar has to include all of me and I am spirit empowered, so my intellect, and that's where I think a lot of our scholars miss it, because they, they see the intellect as a commodity, that, um, commodity that they can use to enrich themselves rather than bringing that same intellect to the altar and making it of service to God. And that's what is important to me, that none of us, and, and, and when I talk to young people, and I realize that they, like the Bible talks about the wisdom of this world, they're, they're saying stuff that you know is not right, but unless the Spirit empowers my mind, I can't get in front of them. Yeah. But once I allow the Spirit to speak to me, I can say things they never thought of before. Oh, I never thought about that. Well, the Spirit <laughs> makes, you know, that's what the, the, the word of wisdom is. It just comes and you can address issues that you might not even be aware that you're addressing at that moment, but it's because your intellect is in tune with the spirit and you can use it for God's glory. Let me ask you this, because you talked about it a little bit yesterday. What What is it that um, spirit-filled people that we can add to the fight for justice and equality that it makes us unique? Well, I think if we take that fight seriously, like I said, we are spirit-driven. That we so there's a I talked about a pneumological urgency, an unction by the Holy Spirit, and I believe that we as spiritual people we're always called to be prophetic. So this audacity to speak on behalf of God, we don't have to be reticent about what we say. We don't have to second guess ourselves. I can boldly stand in front of an issue and speak on behalf of God, and I think we that's where I think we are wasting the spirit that we we have become the church has become silent what if the unction of the holy spirit is part of who you are as a spirit-filled believer why aren't you saying something i don't believe that the spirit is not showing us what's wrong i don't think that the spirit is not even i think what you said is important 
we can take cities, if we can see solutions that other people can't see because the spirit is showing us solutions. Right. But we have went into the world system yeah. of fixing the problems instead of allowing the spirit of God to form us so that we can operate in the spirit on the issues of the day. And I think when, and, and it's what, what you said about the, the man that was healed, when you laid hands on him, he was healed. Young people want to see something real. That's right. <laughs> and if we don't come to yep. them, yep. and you know, I was talking to a young lady who is one of my young colleagues, and she was, I, and I don't do things, I don't even think about half the stuff I do, and that's the thing that I think is really <laughs> But she said, you know, I was I was in service one day, and she said, and I said something, she said, you laid hands on me, and you prayed, and she said, this was Jesus Christ, she said, and I was healed, and you know, I didn't, I wasn't doing it. I mean, I just did what I, you know, yeah. you do what the Bible says yeah. do. And she said, and I was healed. But the other day, a young man came to me and said, Dr. Alexander, I, I, he said, I was in a low place and I read your book. No, he said, no, he said, I saw a YouTube video of you and you were preaching. He said, and I stopped and I cried. He said, it changed my life. If we are led by the spirit, we don't have to stop and think What's the right thing to do? You know, am I saying it right? Am I? You know, so many of us want to be correct, mm-hmm. and that's and we're being correct, but we're not being effective. Come on. Come and on, so, God. when the Spirit leads us, we don't even have to think about. I mean, we're not going to be um, frivolous, but you, but you have already allowed the Spirit to have control of you. So, what you do affects people in ways you don't even have to think about. And I think that's what the the Holy Spirit brings to the situation that we can't manufacture and we we have a we but we're afraid we one thing we don't have as spirit and we're afraid to say that we're spirit-filled and we're bible when we get in other contexts that's when we become afraid we're afraid of our other christians <laughs> so you know we can't affect the world we're afraid to tell other christians that we believe in god that we really believe that yeah. jesus is Lord that yeah. that you know I was talking to somebody the other day they said well I believe in God now I'm asking you do you believe in God uh-huh. I'm asking you have you ever accepted Jesus Christ right. as your Jesus personal Savior but we are, we're afraid we have become afraid and as spirit emboldened prophetic leaders we need to be we need to have the audacity to say thus thus said the, the Lord and and I think we will see situations change yeah Y'all better go to Amazon and get this book. <laughs> I know, I'm telling you. I mean, goodness gracious, it's a whole lot to digest right now. It's like transformative. But I want to. Um, I w- I'm a little nosy, mm-hmm. so <laughs> I was eavesdropping on you and Dr. House's conversation at dinner last night, and it was something that you were saying to him, and I was like, man, I'm about to do that when I go back home. You said oh, that you. Yeah. What am I gonna say? Uh, she writes one hour a day. Yes. 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 Oh, that yes. look. I, <laughs> I was thinking about that this morning. Oh, even on Sundays. Yeah. Like to me, that speaks of like intentionality, and I think that yeah. that is what a lot of people That's, lack. Yes, that is my word. We gotta be intentional in what we do. You cannot just half-heartedly do stuff. When I say you know when I'm, I'm doing something, I'm not thinking about it because you. Got, it's like when people get in the in the pulpit and they pray for the anointing to come down. If it ain't there when you get there, it ain't coming down when you get there. So you gotta be prepared when you get there, but in order to be prepared when you get there, you've got to be intentional about what you right. do. Mm. You don't do stuff halfway. I like what David said, I will not give God that which costs me nothing. I have done no preparation. 
you know, yeah. I hear these sermons, I'm like, when, what, okay, anyway, <laughs> we got to get to the place where we take what we're doing for God seriously, and my assignment is to write. Now, you might have a different assignment, but my assignment is to write. So I can't just show up and say, oh, I didn't, I haven't written in six months. No, I, and I have other things to do. I run a college. You know, I run a press. I run a, a, a archives. Stepping on but, my toes. Uh, <laughs> and I'm a wife, mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. And Ooh. nine people live in my house, okay? So I have to find a place where I can write. So you have to be intentional. You either get up before they get up or you stay up after they go to bed. But there's an hour when there's... And I might tell you, and you might only get a half a page in an hour. Now, you're not going to write... You don't write oodles in an hour <laughs> if you're going to write really right. And, but you can... But it, somebody told me if you write an hour a day, that's seven hours a week, 28, at least 28 hours a month, that's 360 hours a year, you have a book. So you have to be intentional about whatever God says do. Or, you know, I, I hate it when Christians show up and halfway do stuff and say, well, God will bless it anyhow. He no, he won't. Open your mouth and you'll fill it, right? So yeah, but, but Paul, said, <laughs> Paul said something I hear people always mistake. He said, I, I count it all dumb, but he had something to count. Ooh. Come on. We given God nothing, and we said we count that. What are you gonna do with that? Yeah. But Paul had already prepared himself when he said, "The things that I that I have poured into me, I count it done that I may win some." But he had something to count. Most of us show up, we haven't done anything to give God even a dime. It has to cost us something. It has to cost us. You only give seed to the people that's already sowing. Right, and so we <laughs> we can't just show up. We have to take the time. To prepare, I, I, I went to school for 20 years. That's a long time. Mm. I, you know, but and I wasn't, I wasn't. And, but when I went, I went back to seminary. I was in a PhD program when I was really young in my 20s. And I said I don't want a PhD. But when I was called to the ministry, I told the Lord, I will not give you less in my spiritual life than I gave you in my secular life. Mm. And you know, we gotta, we, you know. I gotta So what did you do? And. But prior to that, then I was a research analyst. I was I had a master's degree in sociology from an Ivy League school. I was you know I was blessed. God gave me some great opportunities. But I did research. I love doing research. That's why research is not a, a hard thing for me. But and I you know I ran a company. I did a lot of things. Wow. But um, when so you wanted to match your efforts, I wanted to match. I couldn't give God less than I gave. Mm. My secular job. I just couldn't do it. I would have felt guilty. So, and, I, and I, it's been a sacrifice. I mean, we, I, my lifestyle has changed drastically since I, I, you know, I don't, I don't get paid the salary I used to get. I oh, mean, I those things, that. you know, those <laughs> things are not important as important as doing what God said do. So, what's next for you? Like, so what you working on now? I got seven books I'm working on. She didn't say one, y'all. <laughs> she didn't even say three. She said a whole seven. <laughs> there are various stages of being complete, but I expect to get... I have one that just went to the publisher, and I have one that I know will come out before Christmas. So I have two out this year, and um, I will be working on the others. And I think it's important. What I, well, I'm not, I don't know if what I have to say is important. People tell me, my last oh, book, people is. tell me it changed their lives. So if I can, I don't want to die saying I wish I had. I. Yeah. And too many people die saying I wish I had done this. So 
Okay, the and we spend, we waste more time doing absolutely nothing than you know, and everybody's not and every, the, to to whom much is given, much is required. God has given me so much yeah. that my desire is to give it back and to see somebody life change. What book is most meaningful to you that I've written? Yeah, that you've written. Well, I'd say to Black Fire because of. Being able to recapture the Pentecost movement, but my last book, The Will to Power, which is really one of the things we, I mean, I'm very much into black Pentecostalism, but I'm also into racial reconciliation. Right. Yeah. And The Will to Power is a, and it took me seven years to write that book. And it's only, it's less than 200 pages, but I struggled with it because um, I think it's important to say it right, but I think that. We don't own our part in not just racism, but sexism, in um, homophobia. Yeah. I believe that homosexuality is a sin, but the way that we treat homosexuals is also a sin. That's right. And so we have to look at the way that we as God's people treat other people. And for me, that book is, I think it's going to change people's lives. It's going to change attitudes about the attitudes that we have that have torn the church apart. Mm -hmm. And if we're ever going to be the body of Christ, we have to be the body of Christ together. We cannot individually be the body of Christ. And so much of the hatred and the uh, mistreatment of people comes from our misunderstanding of who each person is created in the image of God. And if we don't see people as, if we don't see individuals as created in the image of God, and all of us are guilty. I'm guilty. Yeah. All of us are guilty. It's, it's so easy to oh, look at the other one. But I know myself, I have been racist. I have done things and I have attitudes about people that God had this one day I was in the airport and well, after 9-11 they were these group of guys. They were traveling. They had on brown suits. They were speaking a different language and I started praying in tongues. And I said, <laughs> the Lord said to me, you're a racist. They haven't done anything. They haven't said anything. That's right. You're assuming that they're going to do something. Come on. We all do it, but there is a corrective that we work in an attitude of repentance. And for me, that is the most important thing that I can say because we, as the body of Christ, are torn apart yeah. by things that I, I'm afraid, if even as a Pentecostal in my own denomination, I won't go in certain cities and go to a church in my denomination. I'm afraid of how I'll be treated. That's ridiculous. We are the body of Christ. So we have to, so for me, that that book and then Black Fire, where I, I actually can tell our story for ourselves and, and lay it out over 100 years. This is how the Pentecostal movement evolved over 100 years. This is what God did. These are the leaders. These are the movements. That That's important for us as a people to know who we are. And this is your book, Will to Power? That's Black Fire. And then Will to Power is the second book. That one came out this year, this earlier year. this year. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's also the premier book for the press. As our new press, we you know we started a couple of years ago, but we really just started getting into the meat of things. I put that on hold for a while, 
But praise God, we have a new managing editor. <laughs> so it's taken off. Well, all those things sound really remarkable. And there's so many other questions that I, I want to ask you. I'm going to have to um, stalk you and, and, and come to your house. You're going to have uh, 11 people in your house. Okay. Me and Ashley going to have to show up. <laughs> I'll bring dinner. <laughs> um, but as we begin to close, is there anything... Um, in regards to activism revival that you would just like to leave as a, a, a note or a, rather yes. a call to action to our listeners? What I would say is that go together that activism revival is short-lived and revival that doesn't take serious our call to social justice mm. is an escape route. And so when we as born again, spirit-filled believers really look at what God has called us to. He has called us to love him with all our heart, Mm -hmm. but also to love the world that God so loved. And often I think we we want to come on in the house because it's going to rain on them and we want to be safe, but we are called not just to come in, but to bring in everybody that we can and help lift you know, I look at people and I say, would I want to live like that? Then why do I want my brother to live like Absolutely. that? Absolutely. And so we've got to take seriously the need. And we can't do justice. We can't sustain the justice that we do unless we are spiritually revived. And so they go hand in hand. And you know that's what makes me so excited about being here this weekend. This has been yeah. really revitalizing to me to see young people. The one thing I can say is I can die in peace. I know that this work is not in vain, that there are others out there who care as much as I do and as much as God does about the project of justice. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Alexander, we want to thank you for joining us today. Yes. Dr. House, we want to thank you for stepping in. My pleasure. My pleasure. Dr. Alexander, how can people get in touch with you if they're interested in having you to come and speak? Well, that's a good question. People can get in touch with me. at my email address, which is president at wmseymour.org. President at wmseymour.org. Um, and I'm, I'd love to come speak. I, I think these are important issues that we're talking about. I would love to share them with whoever wants to hear because I believe that there is a move of God going on and we need to get involved in what God is doing. And so, yes, that's how you can get involved. Oh, that's wonderful. So the way that we all got together um, this weekend is because Dr. House um, held an Emerging Leaders Conference here in Ithaca, New York. Um, and we kind of, or we definitely worked on, or talked about, and even witnessed the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, listened to other individuals talk about the social justice efforts that they have, and we just appreciate the platform that was laid out yes. or created yes. for all of our, all of these minds to come together. And it's the same thing that we want to accomplish with this podcast. And we hope that those of you who have listened, um, you feel challenged to leave evidence that yeah. you existed and to do something else besides. Just just say, oh, I love God. I love God. But what does your love look like in the earth realm? What is Amen. it producing? So again, we want to thank our guest host. We want to thank our special guest. And remember everybody, um, without the love of God, 
um, exemplified in the earth. How are people going to how are how are people going to fall in love with him or say this is the God that we want to serve? We want to make sure that our actions line up with God's will so that people will look at us and say, "What must I do to be saved?" Thanks for listening and have a wonderful day. Amen.